0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible. Public
1: Radio's National Conversation About America in a Time of Change.
2: From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes, and the reason I hear is we are testing that uh, that thesis that conservatives and liberals could actually still talk with one another. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. We are at day 69 of the Trump presidency. Uh, And it was uh, that kind of a week. new study found that spiders could actually eat every single human being on Earth and still have room for dessert. just wanted to start off with that. In other news, Washington Post is reporting that since 2007, the DEA has seized $3.2 billion in cash from people who were never charged with a crime. No civil or criminal charges ever brought versus the owners of the cash, and no judicial review of the seizures ever occurred. Uh, Congress, of course, uh, passed a bill that would let your Internet provider sell information about you without getting your permission first. Uh, Real progress on the jobs front. Ivanka Ivanka Trump changes her mind and will, after all, take a position in the Trump White House. She will uh, take an unpaid job. Um, You recall, remember that uh, President Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. Apparently, he plans to turn, uh, turn it into a family business. Uh, amid partisan wrangling, uh, the investigations continue into the role that Russia may have played in the presidential election. Um, the British move just a little bit closer to leaving the European Union. The Senate moves closer to uh, exercising something they call the nuclear option. Uh, and the president issues executive orders that essentially erase Obama-era policies on climate change. But, But the biggest story of the week, and arguably... The most consequential of the Trump presidency so far was the absolutely spectacular failure last Friday of the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It, It is hard to overstate the magnitude of that failure. And it raises fundamental questions about the ability of Republicans to act as the governing party and uh, clearly puts the rest of the Trump agenda at risk. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our very special guest who come from very different ends of the political spectrum. The first half hour, we're going to be talking with uh, Bill Kristol. Um, and in the second half hour, we're going to be talking with Washington Post columnist E.J. Dionne, one a conservative, one a progressive. So what went wrong here? What should Republicans do next? Democrats, should they bail the president out? Should Democrats now work with President Trump on fixing Obamacare? How likely is that going to happen? We're going to uh, continue the conversation we began last night on indivisible R. Our, our number is 844745 Talk that is four five eighty two fifty five. and you can also send us a tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And I'd like to uh, bring in our first guest, uh, my good friend uh, Bill Crystal, the founder and editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard. Good evening, Bill. How are you?
3: I'm fine, Charlie. How are you? Have you recovered from Wisconsin's heartbreaking defeat in the NCAA? You know what? It, it's basketball. When well, you started talking about what had happened last Friday, I too thought soon. I didn't think you were thinking about healthcare. I thought you were thinking about that fantastic basketball game. I
2: I kept thinking things were going to get better, and then it ended that way. But it's too soon to talk about it. So I, let's just <laughs> talk, let's just jump right into the, the the obvious question that I know that you're expecting. So, what is more likely? Do you think, Bill Crystal? that we will actually all be devoured by arachnids or that Republicans will in fact pass a health care bill.
3: Yeah, that is a close call, you know. I thought you were going to ask me about Harvard making the Final Four in the NCAA ice hockey. Can we talk about that for a while, the Frozen 4 we'll get to I mean, You know, I find in the Trump years, Charlie, I think you and I have a similar view, experience on this, that I've gotten much more interested in sports. You know, I spent a lot of time watching sports, thinking about sports, writing about sports, trying to avoid um, politics to some degree. I think the Republicans, uh, you know, this was kind of a fiasco. Uh, it wasn't actually Trump's particularly. I think Paul Ryan just misunderstood the, both the politics and the policy, really, of how to repeal and replace or fundamentally change Obamacare after it had been in place for six years. It just gets more complicated, obviously. And it was weird. I mean, I you and I both know Paul Ryan well, and I, I we both like and respect him. But, you know, somebody thought you could drop a bill, have markup in two days, you know, overnight, all-night sessions, bring it to the floor the next week. I guess they spent a total of 18 days on it. That's really not how the Congress works. And, and, and the fact that Trump is president and that there's a Republican president a Republican Congress doesn't change that. Barack Obama with a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress took Fifteen months to pass Obamacare. Reagan took six months to pass the tax cuts, uh, and those were, you know, presidents who had won by pretty big majorities with with real momentum, real wind at their backs. Uh, Trump's the president in the high 30s in terms of his approval rating. So, I think it was uh, kind of a fiasco. It could be one they could learn from. And my main lesson from it, which no one seems to be talking about, though, I think everyone loves big, big solutions, mm-hmm. big chain you know, big comprehensive bills, comprehensive immigration bills, comprehensive health care bills, big tax reform. Anyway, Trump's rhetoric contributes to that and progressives have always been in favor of bigger the bigger is better. And you know what, there are a lot of things you could do that would improve things that are sort of more bite sized and I actually think I'm not really in the habit of giving that much advice to President Trump, but there are things he could do that would be helpful, from his point of view at least. That, uh, but instead, if they go down this path of trying these huge overhauls, so I suspect none of it really goes anywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to come back to that in a little while, but I just want to put this in the historical context, and I'm still trying to get my head around all of this. I mean, the repeal of Obamacare was the signature issue of, of Republicans since 2009. It has been mm-hmm. seven years. They ran on it in four consecutive elections. Everybody promised, everybody that was elected said that they were going to do this. This is the centerpiece of the newly elected president's domestic agenda, the 100-day uh, legislative agenda. He hasn't actually had anything passed, so this was number one. This was supposed to set the, the stage for everything else, You know, the budget, tax reform, building the wall, infrastructure. Normally, incoming presidents get what they want, especially when they control both houses of the legislature. And even what they, if, they want, if what they want is not wonderful— Members of their own party do not want to kneecap them in the first hundred days. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand who who screwed this up. Was it you, you mentioned two things? You mentioned the politics and the policy. What was worse here?
3: Well, the policy was bad. I think it didn't have the support of the normal conservative health care people who have been working on this for seven years. There's some, obviously, differences of opinion about exactly the right conservative replacement of Obamacare, and what's politically doable compared to what you'd in principle like to see. But but all of that, I mean, uh, that's sort of resolvable. But you, they dropped a bill suddenly, which really no one uh, in the conservative policy world like, a bill that they didn't have support for among the big Players, the hospitals, the doctors, the insurance companies, uh, a bill that conservatives thought didn't go far enough and moderates thought went too far in endangering Medicaid, so they got sort of whip, whipsawed there, whiplash, whatever the right way to say it. But that they had is.
2: seven years to get yeah. this right. Well, they that's had the one thing. job in seven years. That's your, that's years. your point. I mean, that's,
3: that's exactly, yeah, right. But But that's really the right point, which is they didn't take, I mean, They had seven years, and there were plenty of ideas floating around. But at the end of the day, as you know, it takes either the White House or very, very strong congressional leadership, usually the White House, to do this. And usually in a normal White House, the, after the election on November ninth or maybe on November fifteenth, we'll give them a week to celebrate. They would have had working groups working with congressional leaders, with outside policy experts, with interest groups, just the way the Obama administration worked with the insurers and the drug companies and made some deals that some liberals didn't like with those people to make sure they had it sort of lined up. It still took them longer to do, but there was none of that. I, I sort of I remember when the bill dropped. It was a Monday night, yeah. and I remember calling. Uh, so it was like that evening, and then the next morning, I remember calling around. The people you and I know, uh, both members of Congress, but also kind of healthcare types and some people out in the kind of lobbying world, and think well, it's like, as I, I guess I didn't know about this, and no one, I'm not saying anyone should have asked me about it, but I didn't really, wasn't aware this. was like, they'd worked all this out, but uh, does anyone, I mean, who's, who's been sort of involved? Who could really explain to me sort of what the deals were, what the what, what the thinking was? No one. No one. It was done in a, you know, very small group. I guess the Trump administration was not well set up, or the, the, the Trump administration waiting. For is not doing much in the way of serious policy. Paul Ryan was doing it, you know, with a few people in the Capitol. So they, they just didn't do the normal, I don't know why, honestly, but they just didn't do the normal kind of, let's get our ducks lined up and get our people sort of ready to roll here if we're going to do a major legislative initiative.
2: You know, and uh, Paul, Paul Ryan on, on Friday, after everything fell apart, had that uh, statement, and he basically acknowledged, look, it's difficult to move from being a party that is used to being in opposition to a party that's in power, and obviously being an opposition party and being a governing party, you know, it's Completely uh, different uh, culture there. So I guess the question is, right now, is, you know, do, do conservatives in America have a coherent governing philosophy and a majority to, uh, to
1: enact it?
3: I think the answer to the first, I would argue, is yes, but we don't have a, pre- we have a philosophy. We don't have a president who's really interested in philosophy and who's, nor is he really uh, conservative in the more traditional definition of generally favoring free markets or limited government, American leadership abroad, uh, you know, going after crony capitalism and so forth. Uh, and without that leadership, you know, there are a lot of good conservatives in Congress. Uh, ironically, I would say if you went to Congress today and compared to 20, 30 years ago, there are probably more people. Who, if they were on this show talking to you, could give a pretty articulate mm-hmm. defense and account of uh, various aspects of kind of, let's call it, Reaganite conservatism. There are more, you know, more people who've grown up thinking about that, reading about it. And whether it's Tom Cotton from Arkansas, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, or Elise Stefanik from New York, these are intelligent people. But that's nice, but you do need the leadership. And you don't have a president, nor a White House. I would say that. You can have a president who's kind of not really in the weeds, to say the least, and who, you know, says some stupid things even. But if you have a White House chief of staff who's like Jim Baker or, or Rahm Emanuel, if you have a director of the Office of Management and Budget who really knows what he's doing, you can then have those people can kind of bring the, bring the, bring the whole thing together. But there's none of that. And without that leadership, uh, you don't have a coherent governing agenda so I think the, I think conservative philosophy, I'm not, I think it's in pretty good shape, but conservatism as a governing philosophy in America right now does not exist. It's not governing.
2: Yeah, let me uh, play for you something that uh, the president said last night, and I'm looking to you to interpret uh, this, to tra- translate the, 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 the Trumpism here.
0: I know that we're all going to make a deal on health care. That's such an easy one. So I have no doubt that that's going to happen very quickly. I think it will, actually. I think it's going to happen. Because we've all been promising, Democrat, Republican, we've all been promising that to the American people. So I think a lot of good things are going to happen there.
2: Okay. Now, um, split opinion: Was he joking, or was he delusional?
0: I think he has a
3: deep belief that if he says things, they can happen. You know, I, I really, and I think that's not incidentally quite as stupid as it sounds, because there are ways in which, in life and leadership, you know, in politics sort of promising things with conviction helps convince people Mm -hmm. that it's going to happen and then they get on board and then it does happen there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy thing there right you know so we're gonna win this game right and that makes it easier to to win the game if everyone believes you on your team but at some point of course you run out of that and if your team isn't that good and your game plan is no good you lose even if everyone goes in revved up and i think trump has had a weird experience in politics you know he he ran he surprised all of us he had a combination of luck and skill of a certain kind, and lucky in his his opponents, he won the primaries, he won the election. I think he honestly believes governing is like that. You know what I mean? You you say some things, you hit a chord, the wall, immigration, you know, his other issues, trade, and you just go around speaking about these things, you attack your opponents effectively, and guess what? Hey, you're the Republican nominee. And then you attack Hillary Clinton, and you get lucky with the Electoral College, and hey, you're president. But governing is governing. Governing is about reality. Governing isn't about convincing voters temporarily, perhaps even, that you can make some stuff happen or that you're in touch with their anxieties or emotions more than someone else's. Uh, governing is about actually putting together majorities and mm-hmm. actually dealing with the real facts in the real world. And I really wonder if Trump even understands that.
2: Well, honestly. So, so going forward, there's all this buzz, you know, all these talk uh, coming out of uh, Washington that the Republicans are going to you know, revisit this. They might bring it up for a vote my My problem with this is is that you you have the problem of getting enough votes in the House, and then of course it reaches the Senate where they appear completely uninterested in the House bill and of course, this is a piece of legislation that has a seventeen percent approval rating so um, why are they talking? I mean, where, where are we at? I mean, last week it was They're like, we're done, do we're moving that. on. I don't buy it. Yeah. I don't buy it. I,
3: I, I think your 70% point is extremely important, too. I mean, that's really revealing. And they did such a poor job of explaining it that they managed to make Obamacare more popular. And this alternative, unbelievably unpopular. And what Congress found? I mean, the truth is the Freedom Caucus and some moderates brought it down. But they wouldn't have been able to bring it down if the... 200 or 180, 170 other House Republicans were enthusiastic and thought this was good, good policy, good politics. Let's get this done. Then the dynamics of the conference would have taken over on the Hill. The Freedom Caucus guys would have started to chip away. Ryan would have been able to muscle it through. What happened is, and I talked to a lot of these people. I'm sure you did too. I'd say about a hundred of those other Republicans were saying privately to the Freedom Caucus guys and the moderates who were unhappy because of Medicaid, they were saying, you know what, this bill isn't very good. I mean, I can't come out against it. I'm a leadership Mm -hmm. guy, I'm loyal to Paul Ryan, or I'm just going to suck it up and vote for it if I have to, but, you know, I wouldn't mind if it goes away. So there was no pressure. There was no internal pressure on the Freedom Caucus guys or the, or the Tuesday group members to to buckle. And if anything, there was a kind of certain amount of pride that, you know what, we wouldn't be so unhappy if we don't have to cast a vote for this. That 17% thing was devastating.
2: Uh, well, last week, you know, we're, we're now in the 100 days and everybody, you know, is, 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 is preparing their report cards. Uh, last week, I, I tweeted out I mean, kind of a snarky moment that uh, Trump was now now officially had the worst the first hundred days of any president, including William Henry Harrison, which (laughs) is a bit unfair since, of course, you know, William Henry Harrison died on day 31. But um, your sense, um, how how are we going to look back on this first 100 days compared to other presidents? Is is it worse than you thought or or better than you thought?
3: First of all, it's amazing that it's still not at 100 days, isn't it? I mean. Someone said to me, "Trump years are like dog years." You know, they like—I mean, it's really feels he's like been president for at least mm-hmm. at least six months and maybe longer. Uh, president Obama seems like this this thing that happened years ago. You know, uh, so I don't know. I can't. don't think he can keep the pace up. I guess I would say two things, and I've gone back and forth. Well, I've gone to zigged and then zagged. I zigged originally, in thinking you know he may not be as bad as I thought. That he, he might kind of take the office seriously. Some of his appointments were good. Uh, and then he came in and he was still being kind of a, I thought, kind of a ridiculous and unserious. Then Michael Flynn got deposed, got fired as national security advisor, and H.R. McMaster, whom I know, mm-hmm. General McMaster became a national security advisor. And I thought to myself, you know, he could be kind of a non-serious person a lot of the time. But if you've got and McMaster and you have pretty good people in some of the domestic agencies, maybe the administration can kind of make things, you know, cohere reasonably well, even if he's tweeting and kind of, you know, saying some silly things. I've gotten more depressed about that and worried about that, honestly, in the last two, three weeks. Not not because of McMaster or Madison, any of those who I think they are doing their best, but you just get reminded that in America the president is awfully important. Uh, I've talked to a lot, just by chance, various, you know, for European Europeans, one or two Asians have been coming to Washington, journalists and some government officials whom I've met in the past and, you know, wanted to get together, talk about what's, what's happening here. And uh, I'm struck how worried they are. You know, they feel like so far, so far nothing terrible has happened in the world, really. So slightly embarrassing meetings, Trump kind of embarrasses himself with Merkel, but, you know, Merkel goes back to Germany and life continues and NATO doesn't go away and, you know, we don't run out a trade war with, with Germany or Mexico or anything, but... What a friend of mine, a friend, acquaintance of mine from Europe said is, you just don't know how what if this goes for 4 years at some point just to, to foreign leaders and foreign publics just say this is ridiculous just the people start running in a country like Mexico uh, as sort of the uh, we got to stand up to Trump we can't be bullied by him we can't be polite to him let's get tough on America and then suddenly we're in a you know trade relations are crumbling and Mexico is having a populist kind of insurgency and it starts to look more like Venezuela well or, or something that's not a healthy situation on our southern border what about the same in Europe where you get you know either tr- Trump imitations or Trump reactions you know in one way or the other, and suddenly NATO starts to get a little queasy, or with Japan and, and Asia. So on the international front especially, I, I sort of think, um, and on the domestic front, yeah. you've got the markets the last week suddenly losing confidence that, hey, Trump's pro-business, hey, Trump's going to cut taxes, hey, we're going everything's going to be great. And I just don't know. I, I'm worried that... You know, as I say, you can make it through, I don't know, I was thinking of a good analogy. It's sort of like you have a annoying, slightly crazy <laughs> uncle moves into your, uh, you know, your basement in your house, you know, temporarily he'll stay two or three months. He shows up at dinner each night It makes dinner much less pleasant. He's kind of a loud mouth. He's vulgar. He says embarrassing things. He's rude. Right. But, you know, you figure two, three months,
2: okay, then he'll be gone and he'll go back All to our pleasant family. We have to take a short break here. And when we come back, I want to ask you about where this rush of things is going. Now, you're listening to Indivisible Public radio's national conversation about america in a time of change i'm charlie sykes and we're talking with weekly standard founder and editor at large bill crystal we'll hear more from him right after this break
1: indivisible is supported by blue apron delivering gourmet recipes pre-selected portions and fresh ingredients to customers doors more at blueapron.com slash indivisible
3: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm here with the Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. We will also be taking your calls. Our phone number is 844-745-TALK. I want to hear from Democrats. Uh, do you want Democrats to now start working with President Trump? Republicans? Or are you willing to um, use Democratic votes knowing that it's going to you know move the agenda to to the left? Uh, Bill, I, I noted that uh, you tweeted out a little while ago that uh, I suspect the Trump team has nothing to fear On Russia, but the truth itself. That's certainly how they are behaving. This is not going away, is it?
3: I don't think so. I think, I mean, I was on some TV thing the other day, and it was like, hey, why don't they just do the obvious thing, appoint some distinguished panel, get to the bottom of it, and they'd get this monkey off their back. And I said, well, they're not idiots. They kind of, if there were no monkey, if what's the right analogy there? If the monkey was not real, if there weren't a real problem, they would probably do that. So I suspect where there's smoke, there's some fire. I don't know, obviously, how serious or pervasive it is, but uh, their behavior has been so consistently sort of obstructionist and diversionary in terms of getting to the bottom of what happened in the election and after the election with respect to Russia that I, you know, I'm curious to see what the investigation does. And for me, the big development today was the press conference of Senators Burr and Warner this is pretty seriously signaling that the Senate Intelligence Committee is going to do a serious job. I think if you've got the FBI investigating and the Senate Intelligence Committee investigating. It doesn't matter what happens in the House. I think, assume nothing will happen in the House. That's become a kind of sideshow, ridiculous sideshow. And uh, I think we will get to the bottom of this, and probably if not that long from now. Actually, a few couple of months. And. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the what the truth
2: is. Yeah, but it was a rather dramatic contrast watching the Senate the bipartisan Senate uh, investigation compared to what's going on over in the House right now. Let's go to the phones uh, and get some reaction here. Uh, Leo from Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to Indivisible. Good evening. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm good. Well, um, and thank you for taking my call. Bill Crystal is my idol, along with Richard Simmons. And um, you know, I think uh, uh, he uh, has some good ideas so i had uh, I'm a retired physician. I had a lot of expectations uh, when uh, uh, Trump became president. It's uh, like uh, uh, the old Lincoln that I used to have with the eight cylinder car eventually fizzled out with four and uh i think uh, what is happening with uh, uh, this uh, uh, uh medicare you know uh, i think um, uh, they went with the wrong approach uh, they had do you want do you want to, do you want to see, see do, you want, a, do you want to see
2: them work with the democrats say again do you want to see them work with the democrats
1: um I, yes i want to but i think uh, you know they have set up themselves uh, in a situation where uh, they are uh, pushing the Democrats
2: away. Yeah, uh, here's, the, here's the question that I have, Bill. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what possible formula there would be to sit down with Chuck Schumer, who I, who I think has been very, very clear that sure, he's willing to work with, uh, with the Republicans as long as they, they agree to give up uh, any plans to repeal and replace Obamacare forever. So that, that's, he's, he's been pretty clear that this is never going to happen.
3: Yeah, I'm a little dubious, but on different issues, infrastructure, you could imagine. I mean, what what if Obama's, what if Obama, what if President Trump said tomorrow, you know, there have been ideas bouncing around the Hill for years about bringing down the price of prescription drugs. Uh, These are typically embraced by uh, liberal Mm -hmm. Democrats and moderate Republicans, conservatives are wary of them, but some conservatives actually think it's not a crazy idea to let re importation happen from Canada Mm -hmm. and Britain, places that have high safety standards. Uh, It's a complicated policy issue. I don't even know what what I think about it, but it would certainly be attractive politically. That would be something I think Democrats would have a tough time opposing. Now, some conservatives wouldn't like that. But if I were advising Trump, I would say, you know, you need a victory. I think that caller was very indicative. Mm-hmm. It sounded like he might have been a, a Trump voter. Yes, Maybe so. not an enthusiastic one, but someone who thought he you be not worth taking a chance on him. That latest Gallup poll that has uh, Trump at 36 percent approval, he got 46 percent of the vote. So that means about 10 percent, almost one in four of the Trump voters are saying, you know, I voted for him, but I don't approve the job he's doing. And I think those are mostly People, by definition, they voted for him, so they're not like hard over, you know, Trump opponents or Hillary uh, Clinton supporters or liberal Democrats. They're people who thought, you know, take a chance. He, he's a little inexperienced, a little crude, but maybe he can really make some things happen. Uh, Trump needs some victories, really. I think he, he more than most politicians, and Obama or Reagan, you know, they had an ideological base to their support, and people were willing to ride out some tough times, certainly under Reagan, for example, in 81, 82. With Trump, I really don't see that. So I think if I were Trump, getting some even small and sort of medium sized victories now would be awfully
2: important. Yeah, it was interesting that they're already backing off from a fight over the spending bill that might lead to a shutdown. So they were apparently even willing to pull the whole idea of funding for the wall. Remember the wall that uh, we we're going to build uh, uh, between the United States and Mexico? Now, uh, I, I think there was some indication that Mexico was going to pay for that, but uh, apparently not.
3: Uh, I was funny. some congressman from Texas was trying to explain that the Rio Grande you know, runs between the two countries, and so where would the wall be built? We don't want it here. That sort of gives the river to Mexico. They don't want it uh, on their side for the same reason, and you can't build it. It's so hard to build a wall in the middle of a river. So, I mean, it was always a kind of. And again, Trump could easily say, look, I, people know what I meant. I meant getting serious about border security and building a wall where appropriate. It'll be interesting to see how much he can moderate to that and how much he just defaults back to a sort of demagogic. Position, but it gets back to what you and I were talking about earlier, which is he's sort of never. It's not just that politicians are used to making promises; they don't. They kind of deep down know they can't quite keep, and they're going to have to take seventy percent of the loaf, and it's going to be more complicated, et cetera, et cetera. That would be true, I think, of Obama, for example, as a candidate opposed to a president. But with Trump, you just don't know if he even understands that, or if he's thought at all about how to make the transition from the promise to the to the governing.
2: You know, it is interesting that uh, his his overall approval rating is down, but his approval rating among. Republicans and among conservatives remains very, very high. It's way over 80%. And, you know, to a certain extent, uh, I think a lot of our commentary sometimes misses how his base still likes what he is doing. His base is going to forgive him a lot because of the Supreme Court nomination. They're going to like some of the things that he's doing on immigration, on the sanctuary cities. Uh, Tell me how you react. Are, Are the Democrats making a smart play or a mistake by filibustering Gorsuch?
3: I'm not sure. I think most people I know think they're making a mistake, and they might be right on the other hand. Maybe they want to just show they're going to just be very tough on everything, and if they can get 30, 47 votes against Gorsuch, they can deter, you know, a more sort of confrontational pick the next time. So I'm not sure about that. But I agree. Let's turn around and think about it from Trump's point of view. Here you have a very attractive nominee who did extremely well in his hearings. And on Supreme Court issues, they're complicated in terms of public opinion, but actually the public's fairly conservative with a little c on the Supreme Court. You know, they, They don't like judges making law. They respect, I think, some of the conservative justices who've been put on the court recently. They respected Justice Scalia. Uh, It's a conservative seat, so to speak, on the court. It's the Scalia seat. This would be a great issue, I mean, for for Trump. If Trump had spent the last two weeks and the next week talking about Gorsuch, explaining and having his surrogates explain what a more conservative approach to constitutionalism would mean, I, I think he would be helping himself quite a bit politically. It wouldn't be transformative, but it's a little bit exotic for some Americans. But it would sort of remind people what they don't like about liberals, a bunch of judges making policy from the bench, and why a lot of people did reluctantly vote for Trump. He's done nothing. He's, he's, it's gotten lost in health care, lost in his tweets, lost in Russia, lost in Devin Nunes at the White House. And, you know, how many times has Gorsuch been even on the front page of the papers in the last two, three weeks? You know, yeah, he... for maybe one, one or two days of his testimony, you know?
2: Now, I wish we could spend more time on this, because you've got a very, very interesting piece in the Weekly Standard called The Steal of the March. And you point out that the failure last week was basically a pre-existing condition. You wrote, it is not Trump's fault the Republican Party is trapped in what you called this kind of zombie conservatism. Um, what do you mean by zombie conservatism?
3: I think to some degree there just hasn't been, and I'm probably guilty of this too, you know, thinking fresh thinking it's 2017, it's not 1980, it's certainly not 1955, and obviously you stick to your principles and you adjust them for the times. I think there have been attempts to do so a lot of the, I think, in our magazine and others and think tanks, but it hasn't quite translated politically, and there's a still a little bit of, okay, we're going to repeal Obamacare and now here come the tax cuts, and, you know, it's sort of a, let's just step back and look at the country here and see what's really needed. So on the one hand, I'm a firm believer in, I'm proud of the kind of Republican Party of the last 30, 40 years, and most respects, and the conservative movement of the last 60, 70 years in a lot of respects. But uh, it does need to be freshened and and thought through in in
2: accord with the times. You cite Edmund Burke, one of the founders of modern conservatism, and you write, The Failure to Adopt a Burkean Attitude. Means that Republicans, you know, basically have uh, um, have have blown this opportunity. What do you mean by a Burkean attitude? And and, and is, is this I? The reason I'm asking this is because I find myself um, going back to Edmund Burke more and more. Is this something that you think the conservatives need to rethink?
3: Burke is considered the founder of modern conservatism, but he was a great reformer. He wrote to you preserve, you have to reform. He wrote it more eloquently than that, because he was a wonderful writer in the late 18th century, and they didn't say things that simply. Uh, but if he has many, many quotations to that effect, and he himself personally reformed, was a big reformer in Parliament in the administrative state, and lots of other things. So I think remembering that reforming is key to preservation and to conserving, uh, it would be a very important lesson from Burke for modern conservatives.
2: And also taking the world as it is. He was not an ideologue. I mean, that the whole uh, philosophy there was to you know to to build with what is, you have, not force the ch- pace of change beyond what what society and culture is is going to take and I do think that some conservatives have forgotten that part of being a conservative
3: yeah, I think that 's well said I, I very much agree with that
2: Bill, thanks so much for joining us tonight on indivisible. I appreciate it very much it 's always great talking with you, Bill Crystal is the founder and editor at large of The Weekly Standard. When we come back, we're going to be switching gears. We are going to uh, we are going to just play a little bit of the music here. Um, That when we come back, I I want to talk. We're going to switch gears. We're going to be talking with a progressive, somebody who's going to discuss these issues from the other side of the political spectrum. E.J. Dion is an opinion writer for the Washington Post, also a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. My pleasure to have him join us tonight on Indivisible. Good evening. How are you?
0: Charlie, so good to be with you. Uh, and I actually want to pick up. If I could, <laughs> sure. right
2: where Bill Crystal I, left off. I, I was hoping you. I was hoping you
0: would. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like zombie conservatism, of course, but I want to pick up on Burke um, because you know, in uh, in my book, Why the Right Went Wrong, I talk a lot about Burke too, and make the same case that you and Bill were making that conservatism really has to rediscover Burke. And they, I, I just, I had just enough time to find that my favorite Burke line about what statesmanship involves, Burke said it must combine a disposition to preserve and an ability to improve. And that's exactly, I, I think that's an excellent definition of statesmanship, and it ought to be the definition of conservatism. And, you know, I think that, um, again, it's its uh, odd. I've known Bill for a long time, and we've uh, been friends and also argued a lot. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm again in agreement with him on the healthcare bill because this failed for fundamental reasons. It didn't. It failed for a lot of po- particular political reasons. The fact that um, that uh, Donald Trump doesn't care at all about policy. That great piece in Politico by Tim Alberta. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to try to pacify my dog who's behind me here. Um, that great piece by uh, Tim Alberta in Politico where Trump was sitting down with a group of uh, members. Of Congress who were uh, conservatives asking very serious policy questions, and he dismissed all of the serious questions, saying that is little, and I'll blank bleep. that and yes. just say it was a barnyard epithet. Yeah. Um, but it's not just that or that Ryan couldn't do it, it's that. Every other conservative party in the world has accepted that health care is not like any other thing in the market, and they've all accepted a substantial government role. And I really don't know why American conservatives want to be the meanest conservatives in the, in the world by saying, we're not going to do this. And I think that's fundamentally why the bill failed.
2: Now, your, your book, uh, and you, you and I had a chance to meet in Cleveland at the Republican convention, and, uh, and I told you that I'd been reading your book, Where the Right Went Wrong, and you and I have some broad agreement. You know, my, I, I'm coming out with a book. Called, you know, how the right lost its mind. But I you know, and I come <laughs> But you and I come at this from completely This is what makes our conversation interesting because we come at it from different ideological point of view, but I think come to the same some of the same conclusions here. So, but I'm going to come back to healthcare in a moment because you, you had some uh you wrote a column about the lessons that Trump and Paul Ryan failed to learn from history that I want to talk about. But, you know, I, I'm still, and I know that Bill Kristol is doing the same thing, we're kind of wrestling, you know, what has happened with conservatism? On one level, you had this incredible electoral success. You look around the country, the the extent to which America has turned red, not just in Washington, but throughout the states. You know, you you had this incredible upsurge, this conservative revolution, and yet you have a sense, or I have a sense, and I think we share this, that there's kind of a crack-up going on, so... Um, where do you think the right went wrong? When, wh- what is the moment where you put your finger?
0: Well, see, I go all the way back to Goldwater um, in 1964, And while Goldwater himself was a lovely man, and he became more avuncular and actually more moderate uh, later in life, uh, the Goldwater of 64, who uh, wrote The Conscience of a Conservative, was really a proto-Tea Party. Or if you look at the positions he took, abolish Social Security, get rid of uh, the farm program, sell off TVA. I mean, this was a very radical program. And what I argue, basically, is that conservatives have promised their base over and over again that they could radically reduce the size of government, uh, that they could roll back cultural change that's taken place since the 1960s and of late, many have said we can sort of restore the ethnic makeup of the country uh, from 1950 or 1970 and just roll all that back. These promises were unkeepable and the conservative rank and file became more angry and more radical over time. And that's one reason why the two leading Republican candidates in terms of votes were Donald Trump, who represented one kind of radicalism, and Ted Cruz, uh, who represented another kind of uh, radicalism. But I also think Republicans got stuck. And, and uh, Bill's point, I think, is very important. And there are a lot of younger conservatives who made this point, that um, you can't run Ronald Reagan forever. Um, you know, I revere FDR. I have a a, a Roosevelt Truman poster in our mm-hmm. breakfast nook. So I, I I like the idea of honoring past heroes. But Reagan took over at a particular time and a particular moment, and you can't just pretend that tax supply-side tax cuts uh, will solve any and all problems. I always like to tweak my conservative friends, and, you know, they accuse us of wanting government to throw money at problems, and conservatives seem to think there's no um, problem you can't solve uh, uh, if you just throw more money at rich people. Uh, And that doesn't work either. So I think there is, at a policy level, it's stale, uh, and I think they do need to look to other conservative parties in the world, in, in Canada, in Australia, in uh western europe the christian democratic uh, tradition in western europe which is a very moderate tradition that you know is pro-market, pro market uh, pro you know old fashioned values but believes in a welf- a decent welfare state that will um, take care of people in hard times and i think most americans in their gut want they, they're critical of government and they don't trust government and that's the liberals problem when they propose programs mm-hmm. that's our problem Um, But they still fundamentally think government uh, should help people when they're in trouble, which is why Obamacare gained popularity when the alternative was repeal.
2: Um, I'm going to give you a, just a slightly different to take on all of this because you know you go back to uh, Barry Goldwater, you know, as the, where the right went wrong. Of course, that's also the rise of of conservatives. There really was no quote, you know, right that we, you know, libertarian right b- just b- before that sentence, yeah. I
0: think Eisenhower represented a different kind of conservatism right. that is still valuable and actually uh, has some clues for how conservatives could move forward now. But go ahead, Charlie.
2: Well, you no, know, and, and and that's that's a great point. I, I'm just trying to – and let's talk about this after the break here uh, – the, the, some of the disconnect between the ordered liberty that Goldwater talked about and the sort of the radical authoritarian nationalism and demagoguery that we got last year. Some, something something went wrong here. We have to take another break. You're listening to Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're talking with E.J. Dion, opinion writer for The Washington Post. You'll hear more after the break.
1: Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is
0: 844-745-TALK. That's eight four four seven four five eight two five five. 745
2: 8255 This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. We're talking with E.J. Dionne, an opinion writer for The Washington Post, well-known author. We're also taking your calls, I, I promise. And, but I wanted to get into this whole issue of, you know, what has happened to conservatism? And it's interesting that, you know, Bill Kristol from the right and uh, you from uh, for, from the left – Both generally think of of conservatism becoming stale. Something happened. You had the zombie conservatism. What really strikes me, though, is that Donald Trump, don't you think, uh, represents just a fundamental rejection of almost every conservative idea that conservative intellectuals had talked about and written about over the last 30 years?
0: entirely. Um, You know, first of all, I I just want to say I honor all conservatives who have really spoken out against Trump. That includes you. That includes Bill. And I think that's a very important witness because Trump kind of transcends ideology in the dangers I think he poses to our republic. But I think that conservatives have to come to terms of the fact that some of the Trumpian themes have been appealed to in a more subtle way. I mean, race has been a key part of the creation of the Republican coalition now every time a liberal like me says that um, you know conservatives will come back and say you're saying we're all racist no I'm not saying that at all but it's undeniable that since the civil rights period um, there was dog whistle politics and uh, by a lot of Republican candidates and Trump took the dog whistle and turned it into a bullhorn um, if you look at when Trump was a birther um, there was an awful lot of reluctance on the part of Republican leaders just to come out and condemn that because they knew a lot of rank-and-file conservatives had responded uh, to birtherism on immigration. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans said, you know, our borders are porous and people are pouring through. And they kept saying this at a time when uh, immigration from Mexico had dropped to below zero. Uh, people were going back. And so I think the line I've used a lot is John Kennedy's line from his inaugural address that he who foolishly uh the, um, uh, seeks power by riding the back of the tiger usually ends up inside. Yeah. Then the Republicans rode the tiger and ended up inside when uh, Trump was nominated.
2: Well, I, I've, I've really wrestled with this, and I and I and I do think, and I don't know whether you agree or disagree. You know, I I, I can't you know address the question of you know what percentage of conservatives uh, are, are race a racist or racially in, insensitive. Um, I do think there's been a lot of crying wolf. On the other hand, a party that had not cultivated. Uh, indifference to racial issues, a, a party that, uh, that would never have nominated Donald Trump. Donald Trump would not have been nominated by a party that took these issues seriously. And I, right. I, I, and I, I think that, that that's hard. But I mean, to also talk about the, you know, the, the, the rise of the, the alt-right. You know, what's, what really strikes me is that back in the 1960s, um, when, when we were talking about, since we talked about uh, Goldwater, you actually had a conservative infrastructure that could that could excommunicate the wackos, yes. the, the, the extremists, the, the John Birchers, and successfully sort of kept them off at the fringes, but that's no longer possible, is it? There's no longer any sort of uh, gatekeeping function that keeps out the most extreme, irresponsible elements of, of the right.
0: Well, it's no accident, I think, that you use the Catholic excommunicate mm-hmm. term, because the pope at the time was Bill Buckley and National Review Magazine had a kind of authority and Buckley had a kind of authority uh, to do that. He did it with Ayn Rand he did it with the Birchers, he did it with anti-Semites and you know I I think some of this is about a decline of authority in all kinds of spheres uh, including conservatism but the conservatism is not alone uh, in facing this Uh, but I also think, and this is a challenge both to conservatives and to The Democratic left, uh, which is there is a rise of a new far right uh, that doesn't just affect the United States. I've I've said a lot that the odd thing is uh, Trump, for all is America first, is actually Europeanizing uh, American politics, because a lot of these ideas come out of the European far right. He is more similar to Le Pen than he is, uh, President Trump, than he is to Edmund Burke. Oh, I think Uh, that's true.
2: Or or to Barry Goldwater. He was more more of yeah, a national front, yeah, candidate. yeah,
0: correct, and that I think all of us in the democracies are facing a real challenge because um, you know capitalism in this. You know, as my lefty friends like to say in its neoliberal phase, uh, has just not worked the way that a capitalism rooted in widespread manufacturing that paid decent wages with a strong labor movement, um, you know, a social democratic or New Deal capitalism worked pretty well. A more globalized, more competitive uh, capitalism that has really created these vast inequalities and also combined that with expanded level of immigration all over the world uh, and you have created a radically different circumstance that I think anyone who is a small D Democrat whether conservative progressive um, you know libertarian for that matter although I don't think their economics would get us where we need to go but anybody who cares about democracy is challenged by this new far right
2: get that uh, let's go to uh, let's go to the calls I never really want to address this question of what happens now should 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 there be you know should Democrats now cooperate with president president trump um should if you're a republican do you want to see um the republican party begin to rely on democratic votes to get things done uh kathy from boyd's maryland uh welcome to indivisible good evening how are you
0: hi i'm good
2: well what do you um, want to see happen i
0: have i have a um a, 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 an ma from au from with an international um
3: policy degree in economics um I'm worried about Trump doing
0: us under. Um,
3: okay, let me, ask, let, let me ask let me
2: ask the question. Okay, are you are you a Democrat or a Republican?
0: I'm a Democrat okay. but I'm a Okay, Do
2: you do Okay, do you wanna see do you wanna see them cooperate now with Republicans and with President Trump? No,
3: I don't. Okay. I want them to stand up for a while because they have to make themselves known. Um, I would like to see them have a place to um, negotiate with Republicans so that they can have some power.
2: Okay. I want, this um, is, Kathy, thanks for the call. So, uh, E.J., this is the big question that uh, Democrats and progressives are going to have to decide over the next several weeks or months. What should the next play be? Should it be full-on, my president resistance? Should there be some sort of cooperation? What do you think? next? Uh, what happens next?
0: Well, for example... Uh, What I would do, what I've I've written this, what I think Democrats should do is lay out the fixes they would make in Obamacare to make it work better. And some of those would be utterly unacceptable to Republicans, I I believe, in the public option, for example. But there are other fixes that might not be uh, unacceptable if they drop the goal of repealing Obamacare. And so I think that their position should be, we're happy to make this work better. President Obama himself has said there are fixes he'd like to make uh, in Obamacare. Obamacare. And just put that out there and see if Trump wants to come to them. If Trump actually were willing to make Obamacare a going concern for the next 40 years and uh, cover more people or cover and give people better coverage, then you're in a completely different situation. I'm just not sure uh, he would go there. I think what do you think the the odds of that are? Yeah. I'm sorry? What
2: do you think the odds of that sort of a deal that Republicans would say, okay, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're done, zero, forget about it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: very near yeah. zero. Similarly, I think they should put out a very strong infrastructure program of their own and say, you're talking about it. Do you want to do any of this? Um, but uh, the the other thing I think that, that they have to talk about, whether it has any immediate impact or not, is we had all this talk in the campaign about the white working class. Where is, where is anyone doing Doing anything for the working class, white, black, Latino, right now. Uh, And I think Democrats should use their time in opposition to put together a really robust program um, that uh, helps deal with these inequalities. As as you know, there was a study that showed that came out of uh, uh, a sort of second version of it this week um, where two great economists talk about despair deaths among older white men who are particularly the non-college educated um, because of the rise of suicide and alcohol abuse and opioids. This is a national tragedy, and we ought to be talking about it, and it ought to be talked about in a way that is not racially divisive, uh, because African-American and Latino working class have problems, too. But if we're going to say this whole election was about average people in the middle of the country rising up, where is the action on behalf of those people? Repealing Obamacare was going to set them back.
2: Yeah, there was a kind of a disconnect there. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this, because, you know, for the last 10 years, uh, the anytime you heard the, the term, you know, angry white men, it was never in the context of let's find out why they're angry and let's listen to them more, right? The term angry white men was, you know, that we should not pay attention to them that much. And yet it turns out that, that there was something going on there and that both political parties took them for granted. And obviously, it, there was there was this huge upheaval back in 2016. So... Uh, And and, and Donald Trump has played into it by saying, look, if we just build a wall, if we just keep immigrants out, uh, Republicans are saying, well, if we just cut taxes. But nothing seems to actually be addressing what's happening on the ground.
0: No, and, and, you know, his... uh killing President Obama's uh, climate change initiative, you know, he had a group of miners surrounding him and said, You're gonna, you know, I'm going to bring back those jobs. He's not going to bring back those jobs. The mining industry is not in trouble because of those regulations. It's in trouble because the market has changed. A conservative ought to know that. Um, and, you know, I, exactly right. And But we have to talk about this in a, uh, a racially unifying way. People say this is my Bobby Kennedy fantasy, and I am an admirer of robert kennedy and he did manage to talk to african-americans and working-class whites simultaneously and um you know certainly that should come progressives should want to do that saying that you care about the problems of um, working-class white men does not mean you don't care about the problems of african-americans in the inner city no. but empathy cannot be selective uh, make America empathetic again is my slogan. Uh, that I would. I, that somebody actually, I said it once, and somebody sent me a hat with it on it. So that's my, <laughs> that's my baseball hat. <laughs> on,
2: on on the clean power plan, I'm I'm going to be in the minority on all of this, and I agree with you, by the way, that the coal jobs are not necessarily going to come back. There's been a dramatic shift in technology and the marketplace toward natural gas. On the other hand, in places like Wisconsin, where I'm from, uh, there were studies out showing uh, that uh, this was uh, the this one rule would have cost uh, billions of dollars for middle-class rate payers. Might have cost tens of thousands of jobs. We are heavily reliant on coal, but also manufacturing jobs. Factories use lots of juice. You uh, you know you have printing plants, you have uh, breweries, you have people that make you know Harley Davidson motorcycles. And if you had a you know 20 percent increase in the cost of electricity, that would have been you know aimed right at like a missile aimed right at the heart of these manufacturing jobs. And I think in the election, that's the way many of these blue-collar workers thought of these issues, that yes, they care about the, the planet, but they were concerned about the economic fallout of regulations like that that might have cost them their jobs.
0: Well, I think there I mean one of the problems we've had in dealing with this is that you have um, radical differences among states that are more and less coal dependent in their energy production, and you're, you've actually seen um, a lot of coal plants. Uh, be converted to natural gas and to other sources, Uh, and that can be done. I've always thought you probably, in order to do this right, uh, would probably need to figure out some forms of compensation if some of these rules would affect different regions in a radically uh, different way. Um, But I don't see why we, we cannot move... Uh, toward a, uh, a, a war with uh, less carbon being pumped out there. A lot of people made dire predictions when we passed the first environmental laws uh, in 1970, and we've done pretty well as a country since we passed all those laws.
2: Uh, let's go to uh, the phones. Uh, let's go back to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. David, uh, from Norfolk, you're on Indivisible. Good evening.
0: Good evening. Thank you for taking my call.
2: So you're a Democrat, I understand. I am. Do you want to see Democrats now work with the Trump administration?
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I'm actually running for House of Delegates um, very much for this reason in the 83rd District, um, because my campaign keeps kind of coming back to the philosophical argument you, you've you been making um, earlier on a bit uh, about, you know, uh, the, the difference between conservative and um, and progressive. You know, the heart of a conservative is con- to conserve, the heart of a progressive is to progress. But in this debate, what we've been seeing is conservatives trying to make broad ch- change and progressives trying to hold the line, and it's exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to be. I, I think that the Democrats have got to take their place in the system and play their role to guide the conversation forward and provide these the good ideas that we need to actually make a health care system
2: that accomplishes what we need it to accomplish. David, thanks thanks for the call. You know what, E.J., I don't, I don't mean to be as cynical as, as, I, as I actually am. I actually can't help it. But... I'm guessing that there's a national conversation where if you pollsters would ask people, do you want the two parties to work with one another, large numbers of people would say, well, of course, we want to hold hands and sing kumbaya. When in fact, the reality is that we're about to see both political parties try to, you know, as they move back into their corners, figure out who they can blame for everything that goes wrong. And, 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 and tell me what your, what your reaction is, because I agree. I think the chances of Republicans and Democrats working together on health care in any meaningful way are zero. So now it becomes between now and November of 2018, this question of recrimination and branding. Who gets blamed for everything that goes wrong?
0: like that joke that somebody goes to God and asks, uh, when will Republicans and Democrats work together? And God replies, not in my lifetime. Uh, And that's (laughs) sort of what it feels like out there uh, right now. I think that the polls have suggested for a long time that when you ask Republicans and Democrats, would you rather a politician who sticks to his position or compromises to get things done, Democrats in the majority say, I'd rather have a politician who compromises and gets things done. And Republicans have said, I'd rather have a politician who sticks to his position. And so I do think there's a difference between the left and the right in their willingness to work together. Trump makes it much more difficult for progressive to do that, number one. But number two, you really have to have a form of conservatism that is willing to accept that you need a substantial amount of public action to solve public problems. That's why I go back to Eisenhower, because Eisenhower was a conservative. He was a fiscal conservative, uh, for sure. And yet he understood that there was a role for government, so he gave us the interstate highway system. He gave us uh, national uh, student defense education, Student Defense Education Act, uh, National Defense Education Act, which helped me and a lot of people go to college. And and so what you need to have compromise is a desire to solve a problem, and right now they don't even want to solve the same problems.
2: Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, you, you wrote a column a couple of days ago basically going back to, well, Mitt Romney, had uh, had done back in Massachusetts in 2006, where basically you said, look, back then you saw government's job as coming up with business-friendly solutions to problems the market could not solve on its own. Believe it or not, once upon a time, Republicans believed in more than tax cuts and deregulation. <laughs> um, and so that will you describe it as that what Romney did was an alternative to liberal calls for government-run single-payer system? So is, was was Mitt Romney an example of what you're talking about?
0: Well, he was, that Romney of 2006 was, and Barack Obama looked at that plan, and he said, well, gee, maybe if I take this idea for exchanges from the Heritage Foundation and this idea for a mandate from Bob Dole and John Chafee all those years ago, you know, these were Republican ideas. If I try to get toward universal coverage that way, maybe Republicans will support it. Um, and it's it's fascinating. In Romney's uh, book, um, he had a a line in there which said that Romney cared that what he did in Massachusetts could be a model for the nation. And when the paperback came out, he took that line <laughs> out because yeah. he couldn't really ever admit that in fact Obama had kind of taken his plan and made it uh, a model for the nation. Yeah, but I think things that, change. that's the yeah. way really
2: well, we have to leave it there. I appreciate it. E.J. Dion is an opinion writer for The Washington Post, the author of How the Right Went Wrong. E.J., thank you so much. That's what a joy to be th- with you. Thank you. Th- thank you. Uh, that's all for Indivisible tonight. Tomorrow night, Thursday night host, Kerry Miller of Minnesota Public Radio. We'll look into ways that our religious beliefs affect the way we vote. In the meantime, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com. I'm Charlie Sykes, and if we're still around, we will be back here next Wednesday.
1: Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation.
2: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it, and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.